more the, the slight height difference between the two of us. Uh, but yeah, so Rusty's uh, visiting um, our, I guess our sending church is what you would call it, um, in Arkansas this week. And so he's given me the honor of preaching this morning. Um, so I uh, see we got some new faces, so good morning. And hopefully if uh, you don't like it, uh, come back next week when we have Rusty. And uh, if, if you do, just uh, don't tell. So, uh, <laughs> Anyway, so let's get started. Um, let's see. Uh, we're going to uh, be in Colossians chapter 1 today. Um, but we'll, we'll get started with praying first. Dear God, I thank you for your word and how you made yourself known to us through it. So often we forget your amazing attributes of your character and the perfect work you have done and the perfect way you loved us. Please use this text tonight, or this morning, uh, to remind us of your goodness and our need for you. Amen. Mm -hmm. Well, they say preachers have uh, two, th two paths they go on when they are nervous about preaching, and that's either to ramble on and on, uh, or to say everything they have to say in the first five minutes. So at least if one of those happened, we're all gonna go lunch sometime today. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's get started just looking at the text. So we're gonna be in Colossians 1, 1 through 20. It says, Paul, an apostle to Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in, the, in Christ at, at Colossae, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father. We always thank God, the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, is bearing fruit and increasing. It also does among you, and since that day you heard and understood the grace of God and truth, just as, you, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of, of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to us to the kingdom of His beloved Son and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All right, so next time we'll have Cody read all that for me, so I don't have to. All right, so as we look at Colossians chapter 1 this morning, I'd like to share a story that happened to me a few years ago. I had just finished up my second trip to Scottsdale, Mexico. A lot of you know that's where I actually met my wife. And... Uh, 
at the time when I visited, I didn't know how big of a change God was about to make in my life. But uh, after visiting the, the church in Mexico for the mission trip, I came back and uh, before coming all the way back to Georgia, I stopped at a church in San Diego and spent time with them. And that week they were uh, hosting a basketball camp for youth in the city. And at the end of the basketball camp every day, they would share a piece of the gospel story with the kids. Well, as the, church, as the camp went on, the pastor at the church asked me if I would like to share one of the stories for the day. Excited for the opportunity, I said yes, and uh, uh, just feeling really happy to be a part of this church, even for this short little trip. Um, and so I prepare, and uh, the day comes for my turn to share the story at basketball camp. All morning and all throughout camp, the only thing I can think about is, what was I going to say? And would it sound as good as the people who had gone before me? Um, what would they think of how well I did? And uh, would they want me to be their friend afterwards? Um, all these different things just kept running through my head. So time came for me to share the story. I get up there and I quickly find my words are escaping. I'm twisting everything I try to say. As soon as I think of a phrase, it escapes my mind. And I'm just up there with a blank stare on my face, basically. And uh, eventually I just had to ask the pastor to come step up and just finish the story for me. Um, he graciously did so. And the whole time while he's finishing the story, I was thinking, there's no way these guys would want to accept me now. Um, I had actually, the day before, the pastor had just offered me to come do an internship with them, uh, which was going to open up some major doors in this next big chapter of my life. And I thought, well, that's off the table now. Um, well, I... Uh, the story ends, pastor prays, and the kids are dismissed, and, and to my surprise, I met with a bunch of hugs and encouragement from the members of the church and the leadership. And I realized that what I was trying to do was make the gospel not just about sharing you know, Jesus with kids, but about my own abilities and about getting some approval from other people. And really, it was all to satisfy my own selfish heart. This morning, as we take a look at Colossians chapter 1, we'll see how this problem is not new to the church. Colossians is a book that is relevant to us today. As we get into the main theme, we'll see the powerful descriptions of God and his supremacy, which leads us to answer the question, how can I be worthy of his love? I want to give a little setup for this book of what's going on and what we see Paul talking about. First off, I love reading Paul's greetings in his letters. They're just this amazing mixture of this intense, deep, heart-searching questions and statements, and also just this light-hearted, friendly greeting. And, I mean, really just, it's one thing that we sometimes just read right through, but I really think if we wanted to, to work on being genuine with our relationships, Paul's greetings in his letters are a really good place to start. Um, we really get into it, you know, before we know it, Husbands, you're going to be waking up next to your wives saying, Grace and peace to you, my wife. I thank you for the dinner that you made for me last night. Wives, you'll be waking up next to your husband saying, I have hope in the glory of God and for you mowing the lawn and taking out the trash today. So we'll see if we, uh, we grow to that level of holiness one day. Now, a little backstory on the letter um, to Glossae. Uh, the city was a pretty small town. It was located between two bigger cities, Laodicea and Necropolis. It was so small, and not that it wasn't important, but it actually never got visited by Paul, and uh, we don't really have any records of you know, many people who did go visit this small city. Um, 
just like this, uh, the church, just like the city, was a mixture of Jewish people, Gentiles, and mostly Greeks. Um, and this mixing of people brought with it all kinds of obstacles. Um, just like today, we all have different backgrounds, traditions, and experiences. And when we start to live in community together, uh, our sin breeds conflict. If you have any question on if that's true, uh, just look at reality TV. Um, I don't, I don't know the most current episode or show, but I, I, I think of, uh, I guess, Desperate Housewives or the, the Jersey Shore or something comes to mind. And I mean, you can see how people get in fights with complete strangers and the best of friends. Well, this is a big problem that Paul is addressing in several of his letters. These new churches are facing problems from traditional Jews, Greeks, and people from other religions that hear the gospel and join the church. And in the city, there arises these groups of people who are interested or like Christianity, but they want to bring their own traditions to complement or, in their perspective, complete the gospel. Basically, they thought the gospel was too simple for them with just Jesus and wanted to add their own traditions or philosophies or a level of intelligence in order to make it more appealing or to build themselves up so that they can be better than others. Now, some of you might be hearing that and say, well, don't worry, that's not me. Um, I, I would never claim that my intelligence level would make me worthy of the love of God. Um, if you have to question if I believe that about myself, just wait until you get a text message from me one day. Uh, I don't think I've ever gone a day without misspelling a word or leaving an important word out there like do not or uh, uh, there's lots of instances, but I'm sure over anybody who's received text message from me has seen it before. Our little group message that we have with the church, you can see a lot of admitted words from my part. Um, so the truth is, we regularly find ways, though, to build ourselves up and to try to make ourselves seem more intelligent, seem better than others, and ultimately to be worthy of the love of God. This is all in order to make us be more important or be better than others. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his might, for all endurance and patience with joy. So Paul is using this letter to both encourage the new Christians of the church and refute the false doctrine going around by answering this question of how am I worthy? Now, we already talked about how some of the Greeks were thinking that their knowledge and deep level of philosophical understanding uh, was going to make them prove to be worthy of Christ's love or better than others. See, the idea that Jesus was the only one who could save or is deserving of all the glory is unappealing when you want to obtain a title of importance or be better than someone else. Now, this doesn't just show up in the early church. Today, I'm sure we've all encountered this person in the church that I like to call the doctrinal pro wrestler. Um, this is the person who goes around and has these deep conversations with you where they ask about your life or they recommend books for you to read. And the whole time, they're just waiting to slam you with some kind of knowledge that they have. So a lot of times, a very limited amount of it, too. Um, other times, they like to talk about other pastors or churches or people groups and say, like, I can't believe they, they think this, or how could they not believe this, or how do they run their church this way? And again, this is all just to show how knowledgeable they are and how good they are at theology. 
And while we probably encountered this person, at times some of us have to admit that we've been this person to others. I know I, know I definitely have. One of my favorite pastors to listen to is Dr. James White. He likes to talk about this early phase of the Christian life that he calls the caged Christian. And the whole idea behind it is that when you, a new Christian first gets this taste of doctrine and theology and they, they develop this passion in their heart, all of a sudden they want to attack every tradition they grew up on, every person who has a different opinion, or in their eyes, a lesser level of understanding. And sometimes you just want to take that guy who's them in a cage and just say, just wait, gain a little bit of wisdom and, and, and knowledge and, and, and humility, and then we'll let you out into the world with this passion of, of doctrine that you have. Sometimes we want to play the comparison game with others for holiness. This happens in our words and sometimes in our thoughts. What are some ways that we like to compare ourselves to others in order to either minimize our sin or to make ourselves seem better than the next person to us? The real question. Yeah, so what are some ways that uh, we like to either minimize our sin by comparing it to others or just make ourselves seem better than the person next to us? Say, but what about? But what about that? Yeah, you see it with politicians all the time. What, when they, the news, person on the news asks them a question immediately, they'll say, well, what, but what about my opponent? Exactly. Where are some other ones? I said that was the deflection. Yeah, deflection. We also like to use terms of like, well, I'm only human, or we all make mistakes. I'm not as bad as that. I'm not as bad as that. You have, obviously, if you haven't committed one of those, it has to be higher than, than what you have committed, right? So, so yeah, that's, that's exactly what we like to do. We like to rationalize our sin so that it's not as condemning or not as big of a deal to uh, a failure. Other ways we like to alter the perspective to appear more worthy is by adding to the gospel and bringing in our own extra rules or conditions to it. This is a big problem that you see in the church early on, and we still have it today. We can see in the church, uh, in the book of Galatians, they were having these Jewish believers who were going around saying, well, yes, it is by grace that you were saved, but you still need to be circumcised. And, uh, you know, that would be a pretty easy rule for Jewish people to follow when they're talking to the Gentiles. Other ways we like to see this is uh, you can just trace it through church history even. Um, the Catholic Church, it was really popular. They could say, yeah, it's grace and mercy that saves you. Uh, but you can skip the whole shame, guilt, repentance if you just pay a price. Um, Church of England would say that you know God is the highest authority as long as it doesn't contradict the king. We see this generation after generation all the way up until today. Um, the church, we all struggle with just putting our own conditions that don't have to do with the gospel on it so that we can say, well, look how holy we are. We at least follow this extra rule. What, uh, what do you all think some of those would be? those extra conditions we like to put on the gospel. We show the church every time we Yep, an attendance policy. Do you read your Bible a lot? There you go. Praying yep. the prayer in for two hours every morning. There you go, yeah. Praying the prayer 
which is a good thing, that's cool. But uh, yeah, that's definitely not what saves you. Um, we also like to add things like saying you need to be well liked. You know, the, the person who's hard to be alone with can't possibly be, you know, loving Jesus. Uh, the person who, you know, looks just like me or has my level of financial status, that's someone who's following Jesus. This is something we both do consciously and unconsciously. It, and what it tries to do is it tries to, it tries to uh, make us believe that either we're okay because we believe this fake rule that we put at a high pedestal, um, and at the same time, it's robbing God of the glory that he alone deserves over our lives. A couple months ago, me and my wife were regularly hosting a group of Mormon missionaries, and we'd have them over every week and have dinner and, and talk about a different topic every night. Um, one of those nights we were talking about salvation and the difference between our beliefs. That's when one of the missionaries brought up the point and said, I hear a lot of people say the Mormons believe that we're saved by works. And he said, that's not true. He went on to describe that they believe that they are saved, given a priesthood, and brought into the family of God. And in order to remain there and to get the reward of being a part of the family of God at the end of your time on earth, you must prove yourself worthy of that priesthood every day. Well, guys, if we're going to remember one thing from the sermon this morning, please remember this. If our salvation is dependent on us being worthy of it, even for one day, then we're doomed. There's no hope for us. Now, this isn't a sermon on Mormonism, but I think it does really show a point that we also struggle with. We like to start with the right answer or a decent foundation of saying things like, God is the one who saves, or Jesus is all I need. But we like to slide in our conditions to the gospel to make it more appealing to us. We say things like, God is faithful to provide and sovereign in my life, and this shows because I have a nice job, or because my kids always obey me. We also say things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But then when we get to work and somebody gives us a compliment or something, we tell them, yeah, I got here because of my own strength and ability. But the truth is, the only gospel that will save us is the one where we are the ones in need of saving. That is the people that we are and the Savior Paul is trying to show us. You see, when Paul is giving this description of salvation, he places Jesus as supreme. Let's look in Colossians 1, 15-17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I remember a few years ago, I was watching this revival conference online. And I was really excited because one of my favorite pastors, uh, Matt Chandler, was going to be preaching at it. I logged in online, watched the, the, the conference, and uh, I got I caught just the end of the pastor speaking before him. And um, the pastor was talking about suffering in the Christian life, and he's using the story of David as an analogy, telling people how they uh, that suffering is a part of God's plan for you, and in order to become a king like David, you must first slay Goliath. And people are getting super excited. They're really pumped up. They're talking about, yes, I'm going to... I'm going to slay my Goliath. I'm going to overcome the, the hate I have in my family so that I can be a king like David one day. And the session ends. Everybody's really excited. They leave. They come back. And Matt Chandler gets on stage. and He actually kind of changes up his sermon. First thing he does is he tells them, hey, guys, I love y'all, but I need to clarify something. We are not David. 
and the Bible is not about me. And everybody's sitting there like, like they just got hit in the face. Like they're just like, what do you mean I'm not David? And uh, and he goes on to just tell them how the Bible's overarching theme is the story is about God and his goodness, not about us. You see, because uh, so, so what we try to do is we need to make this shift in our perspective so that we can see and understand how to answer this question of how am I worthy. Because when we strip away these self-fulfilling conditions and we, that we put on the gospel uh, that make us appear like we, we have something of worth to offer, we see that in ourselves we prove to be unworthy. And the lies that we are either okay or we will be okay one day because we will have completed so much or we will have made up for our sin and God will accept us. Those lies will be shouted at us and at times it will seem true. Uh, you'll look around you in your life and you'll see that you seem to be living better than others. And the thought might come, yeah, I did this because I'm good. Like I, God is blessing me because I'm, I'm a good person and I'm holy. And then another season comes and your life seems like it's a wreck and everybody else is perfect. And then you're left with this despairing question, like, well, I thought I was good. I thought I, I thought God loved me. See, this is where chasing the lies between uh, believing the ignorance of our goodness and our holiness and seeing the despair of what that truly brings when we follow that to the end. We're always in this fluctuation between them. But this is the beauty of the gospel, is Christ doesn't leave us right there. Let's look at Colossians 1, 19-20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what does this mean for us, church? It means that he has done what we cannot through Jesus Christ. And you might be asking, but how... How can, I, how can you make up for all the hurt I've caused and all the wrong I've done, much less the wrong of all the world? Well, let's look back a couple verses. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him... All things hold together. See, guys, Jesus is before all and above all. There's no power or authority that is better than his. And in the same way, there is no love that is greater than his. Not only does he save us, but he reconciles us to him so that we can have a relationship with him. Again, it's important to see that Paul doesn't say he tries to reconcile us or he wants to reconcile us. Because Jesus is preeminent and over all things, what he desires to do is accomplished. John Owen, a Puritan, wrote, The revelation of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole of creation. Without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself in inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. I remember when I was in the fifth grade, uh, we had a geography beat, which is similar to like a spelling. Teacher goes around, asks you questions, you get it wrong, you sit down, you get it right, you stay standing up. Well, we go through the rounds, and I actually won. And I remember the last answer to the question, 
was New Zealand. Well, a few weeks later, we actually have a geography test, and there's a bonus question at the end. Well, I read the question, I'm like, all right, this is the same question I was asked to win the geography meeting. I'm gonna get this right. So I, I proudly write New Zealand right there on the paper. Well, we break, we go to lunch, me and my friends sit at a table, I smugly ask them, they get the question right? They're like, yeah, it was the US. And I was like, no, no, it was New Zealand. So come to find out, I read their question wrong. And uh, when I found out that I got that wrong on the test, I was so sure that my answer was right. That I actually questioned if the teacher had made a new test, taken my answers, written it in my handwriting to this different test so that my, my answer would be wrong. See, this is what that, that Puritan John Owen and the Apostle Paul is telling us. With the, without the gospel, we are left in our own pride and our knowledge, which is really to say that we are lost in darkness. And we might be screaming to people around in the darkness saying, I know the way. I'm in the light. Follow me. Look at me. But we are lost. We are hopeless children wandering around in the darkness. Let's look at Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Notice Paul doesn't say you found your own way out of the darkness, or that he helped you as you were just about to get to the finish line. No, the gospel is about his worthiness and his works, not our own. A few letters earlier, we can see in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when we describe something as dead, we normally also don't say it was also about to finish the race, or that it was, you know, walking in the light. Normally dead is dead. Um, well, Paul goes on in, in verse 4 of chapter 2 of uh, Ephesians, he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now this is fantastic news, guys, because where our own efforts prove that we're unworthy and that we can't, the gospel says that he can. Not only does Christ bring us out of the darkness, but he has brought us into his family and gave us the inheritance of his love. We see this again in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made us to be sin, or he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The theological term, or as Rusty likes to point out, the $5 word, I think he says, is uh, imputed righteousness here, which technically is two words, so I guess you did $10. Um, so what this means is that where, our, where we cannot earn our own lives, even though we are in rebellion towards the only one who can save us, even though we are still sinners today, Christ puts on the righteousness of Christ on our lives. He has chosen to love us. He has paid for our sin. And he looks at us, who by ourselves are worthless, and places on us the worthiness and righteousness of Christ, and welcomes us into his family. Now, this next part is where many Christians and non-Christians tend to blur the lines or get the same. And what it is is the difference between living to be qualified for salvation and living as a family member of Christ. This is an important distinction that we need to make, not only in our thoughts and lives, but in our hearts. Let's look at Colossians 1, verse 10. 
Um, it talks about living in the family of God. It says, bearing fruit in every good work. Again, we see how Paul doesn't put this out of order. He doesn't say, once every good, once every good work bears fruit, God will save you. This is a common lie that the world, the flesh, and the devil use to attack us. Make us feel like we first have to clean ourselves up in order to get right with God. But as we saw earlier, the gospel is not our hero story of how we pulled ourselves together before coming for the King of Kings. It's important to see also, though, that fruit is supposed to be a part of our lives. John 15, verse 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you may go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Psalm 1-3 says, He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields fruit in season. And if its leaves do not wither, in all that he does, he prospers. But some of you might be saying there, what does it mean every good work bear fruit? Am I to assume that every decision I make in my life, we should be seeing people come to Christ? I think John Piper answers this really well. He says, it's a spiritual thing to discern which of the good works of the tens of thousands possible in our lives are among the every good work that belong to my life. Meaning that while you know deciding whether you, you know need to wait to go to the bathroom at work or go at home, or whether you decide if I should get that donut at the drive-thru or not, might not be the, the decision that changes a life towards Christ. We are supposed to look at our lives and see fruit for the king. So if we examine our lives and don't see fruit, we need to we need to surrender to God's will. We need to look at it and pray, God, please bring fruit into my life. Look at Colossians 1, verse 10, as we keep looking at living as a part of the family of God. The uh, bottom part says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It kind of makes sense. How can we know and be a part of the family of God if we're not knowing this is another trap that we fall into of either saying we're either satisfied with our relationship and our status of knowing God, or we feel burnt out and trying to get to know Him. In both of these scenarios, the real solution is that we're, we are being dissatisfied with Christ. In the times that we feel burnt out, it often feels like there's a lack of response from God. We're reading our Bibles, we're praying, we're working hard, and it just feels like the Spirit's not popping out of the pages of our Bibles, giving us answers. Or the things that we're working hard towards and praying hard towards gives us the answer of wait or no. The important thing to ask yourself here is, did the God who has existed from all eternity to all eternity all of a sudden get bored with us or not have time for us? Or is our heart the one that has changed? This is why we need community with our brothers and sisters, why we need discipleship, so that we can ask these perspective sobering questions. Let's look at Colossians 1, 11 through 12. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious mind, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. I love how Paul throws out my favorite excuse for being patient right here. Uh, I can pretty much always guarantee you I can I won't suffer from being impatient as long as things are going my way. I mean, like, if we were to look at it, chart it out, I could go weeks without being impatient towards someone as long as it, everything happens exactly as I planned it. And we've all experienced this. Everything's at ease, and we're living life, and then all of a sudden, why can't my spouse hurry up and get ready? Or 
why can't my kids just listen to me? Or why is the coffee shop out of coffee when I pull up to the window? You see, these frustrations and signs of impatience are signs that we are placing our will above our kings. Not because something's going wrong in our life, but because we placed our hope and strength in being able to control the situation and have our desires met. Like we talked about earlier, the Bible is not about you. The God's, pur God's purpose is not to glorify us. And he doesn't, his, his purpose in life is also not to take away every hurt and every struggle we have. Think about it. When we're told to pray for endurance and patience, most people don't go around asking, can you pray for endurance for me while I get through this trying time of receiving so much money? Or could you please give me patience while I deal with my perfect kids who never disappoint me or disobey me? No, it's because life is going to be hard at times. And sometimes God's going to call us to do hard things. And our answer to that time doesn't have to be, well, nothing's wrong, I'm fine. It doesn't have to be that, well, today was hard, but tomorrow will be better. No, we can be real. We can say, this is hard. This hurts. But the same God who saved me out of love for me, not my own worthiness, is the same God who deserves to be glorified and be made known to my spouse, and to my children, and to my co-workers, even to my friends who are not being a good friend to me. Tim Keller has a really good quote here. He says, if, if you are indifferent to somebody, then their happiness is at the expense of your happiness. But if you are in love with somebody, their happiness is your happiness. All these things, bearing fruit, growing in knowledge of God, and living with Patience and endurance are dependent on our love and our hearts being joyfully and grateful to our Father and Savior. Otherwise, these works prove to be as worthy as we are apart from Christ. Now, the hope in Colossians 1 today is that it should lead us to go out of here and stop fighting this impossible fight of saving ourselves and tear down the fake pillars that we stand on our own unrighteousness. We need to surrender to our Savior, the only one truly worthy, who has saved us not because of our goodness, but out of love and through his goodness. And then we need to examine our lives so that we're showing his love and glorifying him with how we live. Let's pray.